All right, people, another week, another episode, season six, episode four, entitled Book of the Stranger. We are banging these out as we are getting closer and closer to the battle for the Iron Throne. I'm joined once again by Professor Pat. Pat, do that jokey joke of the week today. Yeah, listen, when you call me out on the joke, it, it makes it a little more diminished. But I think the Talking TV family right here that's Talking Thrones with us will agree that they've come to see the Book of the Stranger, right? You know, come and see. Uh, every sentence we're going to say, come and see, because that's poetic, right? Yeah. Right? That's yeah. that's Ramsey's poetry working yep. for him. Totally. Come and see. Yes. Yeah, poetic. Very much so. All of that and more on tonight's episode of Talking Thrones. funny that you explained the whole thing of like you know diminishing returns when you ended up having to explain that joke because i'm not gonna lie if you hadn't told me that i probably wouldn't have gotten the joke at all oh man that just goes to show how much stuff ends up going over my head man ramsey gets the award for best like you know threatening letter in a tv show oh yeah oh <laughs> yeah well, i mean i feel like it's crazy because after like i feel like kind of how down we were on ramsey as far as like oh no like you know are they going too far with ramsey last season i feel like surprisingly enough like the minimalistic usage of him combined with like them bringing back everything that we loved and simultaneously hated about him as a character in the first place i feel like he's kind of restored he's back on top for me ramsey wins this season hands down because the crazy part is that after this episode we don't see him again until the battle of the masters it's actually kind of nuts yeah, I think, you know, basically, I think how, what they mishandled was him usurping, you know, uh, Bruce. Bruce Bolton. I agree. And that's that's the fact. You know, it's it's one of those things where it could have been a little more subtle. It could have been a little more impactful. Like you're, you're talking about moments with these shows where it's like, oh, my, they caught me off guard. I didn't expect that to happen or I didn't expect it to happen that way. Uh, with that, they just sort of have him go in for a hug and be like, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's like, okay, like, <laughs> really, I feel like it's really no gotcha. suspense, like, no nothing. I feel like know, it's really, really the honest. crowning achievement of the gotcha mode. But people, this is it. Season six, episode four, Book of the Stranger. And it's really interesting because I feel like when it comes to big, like massive moments that happen in certain episodes, I feel like this one is kind of forgotten because there's a lot of big stuff that happens in this episode like a lot like i'm like re-watching this especially after i would say kind of a little bit of a letdown of a third episode you know with that last week's episode that we did man i forgot how much stuff happened you get john reuniting with sansa in this episode you get the big daenerys you know burning down the cows and basically taking control of the dothraki you get fion going home for the first time in a while you have ramsey kind of solidifying his position by killing osha uh you have the beginning of you know the plot machinations that the high sparrow is doing like it, it, one of the things i will say in hindsight that I, I kind of didn't give one of the storylines this season enough credit for was kind of the High Sparrow and his plotting and his machinations behind the scenes because that's one of those things where it's kind of like old school Game of Thrones where it's so subtle and it's built up that when the moment comes, you almost don't realize that it's been built up to. Because I remember watching when the moment happens two episodes from now when the High Sparrow kind of reveals this new allegiance with Tommen and Marjorie. And I'm almost like, where the hell did that come from? But rewatching it, it's one of those things where I notice how built up it has been. And it fits too because that's also the moment that references the title of this episode, The Book of the Stranger, which is obviously the passage from the seven-pointed star that the High Sparrow was attempting to use to get Marjorie on his side. But like I said, this is a 
banger of an episode. There is so much that is happening. That is so many significant events that are happening. So much that is continuing to fast track us and speed us towards the finale of the Battle of the Bastards. It feels like we kind of have gotten all of the exposition and setup of the story out of the way. And now we're getting into the middle sector of the story. So let's just get into it, man. So unlike last week, we're going to start with the wall. Uh, big moment. Big moment right here. John, he is officially, he has renounced his vow. He has said, my watch has ended. I have died and come back to life. I am no longer the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. He's about to leave despite Dolores Ed's very logical complaint saying, you know, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You're just going to leave us here right right now, you know, with, you know, what, right when we're about to have the fight of our lives. And he's like, dude, I died already. Like, I, I don't know what yeah. else you want well, from it, me, you it's, know? John is, it's like game over. It's like, yeah, I died. Um game game's over I, I don't have to do any of this uh oh we have to take winterfell uh no i don't, <laughs> you know, I don't have to do anything. It, it, it's it's very interesting just like he's obviously he just got resurrected he doesn't really know what to do how to really interpret that so it's one of those things where john as a character is lost at this moment he just knows that the path he was on uh was just bad and that you know he's no longer going to follow uh, things based on honor, right? You know, we, we talked in season one, uh, two and three, you know, this whole idea where people that follow honor are, are misguided in this hunt for the game of, of the throne. And, you know, for the most part, I think John's rethinking that and he's also rethinking everything. So when Sansa says, um, you know, we got to go take, you know, and, uh, Winterfell and, and save Rickon, you know, he kind of hesitates and stares at her and he's like, yeah, sure. You know, just well, because just, no, that's expected of him. It's you know? obviously it, it's the he's biggest. Otherwise. It's the biggest, most talked about moment. John's about to leave when literally Sansa, Brienne, and Pod finally arrive at the wall, and it's this big, built-up hype moment. It's one of those moments that felt like so big and built up and hyped up that you almost didn't believe that it was actually going to happen. You know, kind of the irony that okay, you know, over the last couple of episodes, Sansa is trying to get to the walls. He's trying to get to John. You know, but John's dead, so they're, they're like, you know, oh, well, what's what's gonna happen if she if she gets there? And you know, it, it, she meets Alistair Thorne standing over John's corpse. You know, like uh, what what's gonna happen there? But so, and the other thing too, obviously, that's so impactful about the moment is that it's the first time we've gotten a stark reunion of any kind since the first episode. Like these characters, that the, the thing that was so impactful, and again, was one of many other things about this season that was kind of lessened by the last couple seasons, is that the Starks have spent a significant amount of time apart from each other. You know, you really only had Sansa and Arya together for the rest of season one, you know, before they ended up being split apart after Arya was able to escape from King's Landing. You know, Rob and Bran together for a little bit in King's Landing before Rob, unfortunately, ended up going south with Catelyn. And then they, unfortunately, both met their demise. But, you know, the last four surviving stars, or five in this case, but although not for long, you know, John, Sansa... Bran and Arya, who obviously all finally end up reuniting by the time season eight comes around. And this is the beginning of it, you know? And in the moment, I will say it was huge. It was impactful because I've been re-watching all the episodes up to that point because that, that was a big thing like there was there was something about season six when that came out besides it just being the first season that had surpassed the books where I'm like okay like this is that we're actually starting to move we're, we're to quote you know well you know to quote Doctor Strange from Infinity War like we're in the end game now we're, we're moving towards the finale and obviously again lesson by what came after it but in the moment super super impactful and this is the beginning of it 
And of course, it's one of those things where in hindsight, I'm not sure how I feel about it because in order to kind of build more so off the point that I was making last week, this is the beginning of John not really calling the shots anymore. This is the beginning of John kind of starting to be led around by a lot of other characters. And it wasn't as apparent to me in the moment because, again, it makes sense as to why Sansa would be calling the shots here. John hasn't been in Winterfell in years at this point. He literally just came back from the dead. He doesn't even really know who Ramsay is. He's not really aware of what's been going on in the North in general because he's been so focused on uh, on, you know, serving the Night's Watch and trying to prep everyone for the for the coming battle with the White Walkers and, you know, doing what he can to save the Wildlings. And he quite literally just came back from the dead. And Sansa's here. They have this great reunification. You know, they do some, uh, you know, they do some exchanging, some memories. It's rather interesting, too, because if I'm not mistaken, I don't think John and Sansa had a single scene together in that pilot when they were all still together at Winterfell. So it's certainly interesting to see here, you know, them playing off certain dynamics before Sansa kind of immediately moves into, you know, where are you going to go? And he's like, I'm not really sure. And she's like, well, you know, we, we got to take back Winterfell, you know, and he's like, you know, and they get into some legit arguments where he's like, I'm tired of fighting. I came back from the freaking dead. I don't know how many times I have to admit that and enunciate that for you to understand that. I literally just hung a kid outside his, his corpse still hanging right outside. There. He's like, I can show you if, if you want, you know, and so I definitely think that. Well, Santa definitely does make some legit points. I feel like there's something here to where, like, she's the one that's kind of motivating him to do everything. Which, in, what I will say, though, apropos of that, is that this is also the beginning of, you know, Santa's kind of upward turn. You know, we're after seeing season after season after season of Santa being downtrodden. This is also finally the beginning of her, like path to, you know, triumphant and eventually becoming Queen of the North by the end of the series, you know, which I think is one of the few things that they did get right in the finale. But I don't know. What's your take on all that? Well, Dom, I think the main thing here is that John last season saw the Night King and he saw the Night King raise all the dead. Uh, he died. And then this season he gets resurrected. And, you know, I, I don't think they explore this. But the psychological impact of, you know, seeing what the Night King does to the dead and raise them and then, you know, himself going through a death and resurrection, you know, has a little bit of a, a, a you know, basically um, psychological impact on the character. Like, I don't think he really knows how to take it. And I, I don't think they really explore it in the show, but they definitely show that he's, you know, hesitant. Uh, he's somewhat uh, uh, disassociative uh, from, you know, the situation that's going on. And, you know, he's kind of recovering in, in this circumstance right now. So um, I think, you know, there's a certain amount of trauma that he's experienced that he's still trying to work through. And I can totally see when they're reading Ramsey's note and Ramsey's, you know, taunting him, you know, come and see, uh, I'll kill you all, you know, come and see. And, and he doesn't want to read the note. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like he's already dealt with people like this and he doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh, and then Sansa perfectly happy with reading the note because she's obsessed. She wants her revenge. She wants to get her home back. She wants to save her brother. So yeah, Sansa at this point is someone that was under the tutelage of Littlefinger. you know, went through the whole trauma stage herself. And now she's, she's here willing to start playing the game. Whereas John just lost the game uh, and he has to be given a reason to come back. And, and I don't think, you know, taking Winterfell and saving Rickon necessarily is like the first thing on his mind. You know, the first thing on his mind is like, 
am I going to become a zombie? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, uh, I think there's, am I a know, zombie? I'm not quite yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. They don't really play with that. You know, it's like, they kind of mention it like, Oh, am I the same person? Is that you in there? Like all those phrases from the last couple episodes. But, you know, ultimately I think, you know, John is traumatized from this and now he's being kind of thrust into this big battle that's coming up. So I wish they played with it a little more. Like, you know, obviously he has some moody backs and, and forths in the upcoming episodes with Sansa, but you know, they don't necessarily play it as like, he doesn't know what he's doing anymore or lost his convictions. Uh, they kind of just play it as, Oh, that's, that's just John. Um, you know, I think it would be better if, if it was, you know, a little more kind of, uh, he was a more emotional character at this point because of, of the trauma that he went yeah. through. Um, and ultimately I think they, they just drop it by the end of the season. Like he kind of just is becomes, becomes the warrior in the North does his thing. He, he turns back to the night King, um, and there's not really a complete arc of his, you know, resurrection trauma. Uh, it's just sort of, you know, underlaying this entire season uh, of how he acts and what his decision making in, how he treats and, and kind of interacts with Sansa. Um, so it's there, but I don't think it's necessarily in our faces. It's, it's going to be very subtle. And as we watch the rest of the season, uh, we're going to be able to track that. I agree. It's kind of the biggest kind of under like let's call it like looked over hidden flaw of season six which is that it's almost kind of the same problems with season five but also the opposite in the sense of where season five there were storylines that felt dragged out and just wasted to the point of like what are we doing here season six with certain of the storylines not all of them but certain of them specifically I the big ones I find it feels like they are again just trying to get through and speed through all the motions or to get to it. Like John should be traumatized from coming back from coming back from the dead, but he kind of just quickly gets over it. Once Sansa gives him that pep talk and they can start going and recruiting the wildlings and all the Northern houses. So they can start to muster their forces, you know, Cersei, I feel like should be taking a little bit longer to get over the trauma of having been paraded through the streets naked, but is now seemingly real quick and right back on this hellish revenge quest against the sparrows. You know, same thing with Daenerys. Daenerys really, especially at the end of this at the end of this episode, we'll get to that when we cover her part at the end of this episode and that whole sequence and some other problems that I have with that. But she just she immediately is just like, yeah, fuck it. I'm just gonna. I already know that I'm the unburned, so I'm just gonna go for it. I'm literally just gonna yeah, I think, rush through this. Thing. I think uh, Cersei basically has the break, you know, from season five to six, so we can you know, as viewers excuse the fact that she's, you know, has less, uh, outward trauma because we, we can assume that more time has gone by That's and fair. with the mountain, you know, there to sort of be her new protector and just the scenes that we, we see where he just like brutally murders people. He basically is willing to take on like 10 nights guards all by himself. Like the fact is, uh, Cersei's sort of, protected she's like in a cocoon but you know she she now uh feels protected and, and she's able she's must be furious you know it must be like how how did this happen to me you know i i need to get my revenge like this is uh her basically getting angrier and angrier um because of the the walk of shame so i i think it's one of those things that she probably is traumatized but she's immediately turned right. to being sort of reclusive and angry. And that's how she's going to sort of deal 
uh, with that situation. Yeah, it's just definitely capable of dealing with it in a different way. Well, I mean, you mentioned, so let's get to the two kind of quick offshoot storylines that kind of spring forward from the North. You know, obviously, again, John finally makes the decision after Ramsey directly threatens the Wildlings and he asks Tormund how many fighting men they have. And he's like, um, like, they, they have a lot, but, you know, not enough. And he's like, okay, well, if we form an alliance between the Wildlings and the rest of the Northern Houses that aren't allied with Ramsey, we might actually have a shot, you know. Although, what kind of problem that I have... How the fuck does Sansa know that Ramsey killed Roos? Like, that happened after the fact, you know? But she, but so he's reading the letter, and he's like, you know, when he says Lord of Winterfell, and she's like, oh, that, oh, that means, he, you know, he's Warden of the North now. He killed his father. Like, like she already knew it. It's like, it would have been one thing if they wrote it where she was able to guess that that happened because she knows, you know, because she spent time with him and she knows that he's capable of that. But, like, it's almost like she already knew it. I'm like, what, did you intercept the raven that just happened to be th- that raven that happened to be flying? How do you know that? You know, like, it's just one of those things where I'm like, come on, guys. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I, I think in the way it probably it's plays in the fun. scene. Yeah, it, it just, it's just a line of dialogue. Like, I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, Sansa's up to speed with us because we know she knows type of thing. And I think that's sort of, you know, um, in terms of like realism, do you really want to go through uh, another like two minutes of her explaining why she thinks right. Ramsey killed Bruce? Um, I mean, so I think it's more of a streamlined like two thing. minutes long. It's definitely more so streamlining, but it's one of those things where again, you and I have feel like have been, you know, going back and forth on this where you talk about streamlining and I talk about it. it's like I think it's just a simple matter of a few choice words that are differently and I think it, it adds that much like more context to the scene, you know, but like I said, that's neither here nor there. So now yeah, well, it's it, to to go through later in the season, you know, Sansa starts to think like Ramsey and starts to anticipate his moves. And so this could have been an opportunity to do that. Exactly. Really exactly. show that she's anticipating him. Exactly. So two quick spinoffs that kind of come from the scene. The only scene that we get of Ramsey. And again, the last that we get of Ramsey before the uh, obviously, you know, his big defeat in the Battle of the Bastards, obviously, you know, that the OSHA seduction scene. So let me let me ask you this, Pat, because I've been racking my brain. I've been trying to figure this out. Is this a good scene or no? Because I, I, I've gone back and um, forth, and I'm, I'm really at a loss of this scene. Obviously, famously, Osha attempted to seduce Ramsay. Ramsay very easily figuring out, obviously, you know, that she pulled the same ploy on Theon. And so, as a result, you know, killing her before she gets a chance to kill him. Well, yeah, because he tortured Theon, so he knows everything, right? So right? He knows. And I, I think, you know, it is a good scene because, one, Osha is, hasn't been around for such a long time. And really, for the audience, you're relying on the summary of what we know about her character, right? We know that she is a good talker, that she's very much, uh, you know, uh, deceptive. And so it kind of throws us right into that. She's going to try to use uh, the, the skills that she knows how to use to get herself out of this situation. Um, but in counter to that, Ramsey's going to use the skills that he has. And it's sort of like Ramsey trumps Osha in, in terms of the battle of their skills. Um, so, you know, I think it's one of those things where uh, they wanted to get Osho out of the way and they needed to kill her. And so they put together this, uh, you know, I think a quick, clever scene between the two of them where Ramsey's clearly going to get the upper hand and kill her, um, you know, just to kind of get her character out of the way. She's no longer needed because you know, ever since she left Bran, uh, Rickon was no longer needed either. And now it's like, yeah. they only need Rickon for the start of the battle of the bastards. Um, 
And so it, it's like they just got to reduce the uh, the body count here and just get yeah. rid of, of characters that, uh, you know, obviously they could have just like found Rickon and then Osha, you know, Rickon could have said like, oh, she ran away. Right. And we never saw her again. Exactly. Um, like, you know, so it's they had their chance to kind of give her uh, a little bit of a, you know, more pleasant yeah. disappearance from the show. But in this essence, you know, it kind of uh, gives us a small, I think, well-written scene. I like the fact that they uh, kind of go back and forth about, uh, you know, uh, what is it? They, uh, um, they have a little back and forth before the seduction starts and. Uh, I forgot what so, it was something, about, but... something about like, um, oh, you used to serve the Starks, and she's like, oh, one lord is another, you know. She's like, you oh, know, it, you, it you, was, you it was, uh, the flayed, the flayed man, the flayed right? man, yeah, that's right, right, the because man. it's like, oh, my, your banner's the flayed man, and it's like, yeah, I like to do that, or <laughs> whatever Ramsey says, yeah. and then she's like, you know, do you eat them afterwards? And Ramsey's like, no, and, and she's like, she... then I've seen worse. Yeah, exactly. So. It's referring to the cannibals that we we've already seen in the right. show could so. potentially be alluding to the fact that the Boltons may be descended from like some some you know some of the some of the worse off wildlings you know because that's the thing that's been established obviously is the fact that the wildlings and the northerners do share the same blood because they're all descended from the first men or at least a majority of them are so yeah so I, I think you know there's a little playfulness in the beginning of that scene with the whole flayed man and and the wildlings and the cannibals and and so you know, is it a short scene? Yes. Is it one of those scenes that basically is there to eliminate one of the, uh, I would say, relatively beloved characters uh, because there's no point to Osho anymore? Yeah. So it's it's economical. Uh, but again, I, I think it's probably the best uh, that we could have gotten because, you know, if you look at all the other ways they could have made her disappear, it's basically Rickon was found. Right killed in the woods like who oh she, right. you know rickon was with some woman we killed her exactly. you know that could, it could have been just a line of dialogue that got rid of her so we got to see one last attempt at her you know trying to utilize her skills and you know basically take out ramsey uh but even you know but ramsey, alas, it was yeah ramsey just he's unfortunately uh, too good you know it's it, he's too evil to right. be stopped by anything and so exactly. It just adds to his, you know, uh, resume of reasons why he might win the Battle of the Bastards. And, like, look, I can't even say that it's one of those things where they deviated too far from the books because the last that we even hear of Rickon and Osha in the books is when Davos is going south while Stannis is still alive, attempting to recruit Northern Lords for Stannis, and he has made a deal by one of the Northern Lords, the Manderleys, and is that he will declare for Stannis if... Um, if Davos is able to bring Rickon back because the Manderleys have discovered that Rickon is alive because Osha is taken into this island of Skagos, which is supposed to be uh, home to, like, this brutalistic cannibal tribe. So, like, I, I, but again, that, that was kind of where we left off there in the books, and that was about it. So I can't even really say that it's something that would, like, deviated so far to a point where it didn't even make sense, but who knows? So, ugh. Um, sorry, I was just reacting to that. So that brings us to another <laughs> character that we hadn't seen in a while, which is uh, Littlefinger. Littlefinger's finally back after a couple episodes where we haven't seen him. He left us, I want to say, like, it was like episode six or seven of last season. We haven't seen him in a while. And, oh, man, we thought that Littlefinger was done just transforming from the smartest man in Westeros to the biggest idiot in Westeros. Nope, not at all. He is back to just... I mean, he's still pulling out crafty schemes, but it's to a point where it's like, really? People still can't see the holes here? Like, come on. Yeah, like, well, hey, listen, you know, if you're on his good side, you're getting a falcon. 
You know, that's yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> yeah, so. And Roy, Royce, unfortunately, despite the fact that his common sense is trying, it is trying. Like That's the thing that hurts so much about the scene. It is a scene where common sense is trying. It is fighting to get through the barrier of stupidity that has just been generated everywhere where this character goes. Where Lord Royce is like, yeah, somehow, magically, when Sansa left with you, she ended up in Winterfell and the Boltons. And Littlefinger's response is, oh, on the road we were set upon. Nobody else knew of our location and where we were going. And Royce is like, really, dude? Really, you're going to get that for me? <laughs> but then, of course, he yeah. turns to Robin, and Robin still doesn't know any better and doesn't know anything. And then, of course, he's able to manipulate the situation in his okay. favor. Robin again. is so disinterested and 100%. I don't, you know, the Falcon, that's like the only gift he gave him. <laughs> and like, he's just willing that's to all be it like, takes. yeah, that's whatever, all it takes. whatever little finger wants, you know, he gets. I guess you're right, uh, Lord Baelish. You know, it's it's. Oh my God, this character Robin is—he's one of those characters where you want to reach through the screen and set him straight in some yes. way. Yeah, you you just get so angry that there is this person in the world, and um, you know, hey, listen, it, it's played to a T. It's you know meant to represent the the young lord that just does you know not understand the bigger game that's being played, and. You know, it's because he's blasé about certain decisions that Littlefinger is able to easily manipulate him, easily put pressure on, you know, someone like Royce, who has been, you know, what, a general for, you know, uh, several generations of of his family. Like they've been leading the army of the Vale. Yep. You know, so like, yeah, I mean, Royce even of, talks about it in the next season that he was around. Like, he, you know, he, he was a, even a little bit older, you know, when they were when they originally went to war with the Mad King. So. Yeah, so it's one of those things where Littlefinger uh, has everything like locked down in the veil. You know, he is the Lord uh, f for the most part because he can manipulate Robin no problem. And even though people can openly see his schemes and talk about them out loud, even in front of Robin, Robin doesn't care. And Robin's not going to do anything about it. Robin just sort of trusts that if he continues you know, supporting Lord Baelish, Lord Baelish will take care of him with uh, whatever gift comes his way, like a falcon or whatever. I guess that's the kind of the reason why I'm raising so much ire about Littlefinger is that, well, he's not necessarily doing anything that betrays his character, per se, as far as kind of using characters to his, you know, to his, um, you know, to his advantage. Obviously, again, there's been a consistent history of that throughout. It's just the fact of where it feels like they're jumping through too many hoops in order to make him consistently prioritize Sansa to a point where he can't really see past his love for her, which just goes completely again. It breaks away from his character because, again, this is a character who has always prioritized himself over anything else. Like, yes, for sure, he does have people that he cares about, cares about, you know, whatever that means. But at the end of the day, he's, uh, what's it called? He, he's all about self-preservation. That's the only thing that matters to him. So the fact that he is consistently, you know, making these mistakes, you know, the fact that he thinks that he's going to be able to so easily win Sansa over to his side, by presenting the Knights of the Vale as this massive fighting force in order to win at Winterfell, and even to the point where even she knows that they're going to need him. It's still one of those things where it's like, dude, it's like, I feel like you could have just gotten so much more if you just, you know, presented them to her in the first place, you know, and just done what they did in the books, which was waited out in the Vale, which again has remained pretty isolated and untouched by the rest of Westeros and wait for the powers that be to fight, you know? It's just like, like, again, like I said. What is his game plan? Like, what I'm saying. Obviously, obviously he delivered. Sansa to the Boltons and he was supporting the Boltons because he wanted 
them in the north and basically the Lannisters in the south. And he wanted there to be tension because the Boltons, you know, would not necessarily, uh, you know, kneel down to the Lannisters. So he wanted to create some sort of north and south tension between those kingdoms. And then what was he going to do? Just wait till they kind of like imploded each other or like what's his game plan to really rise from Lord of the Vale up to the the throne? Um, It's kind of muddy to me. Like, is it uh, sort of, you know, somehow letting them fight a little bit and then figuring out a way to help Sansa usurp him? Uh, Like, it's really uh, not quite clear to me what Lord Baelish is doing uh, you know, in, in these last couple of seasons, um, you know, obviously he wants to climb the ladder and get onto the throne. Uh, but you know, are things just like not going his way or are they basically too hard? Like he's not thinking right. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's going on with his, his scheming and planning at this point. Yeah. Like he got himself to be a, a Lord and he got himself to be like an ally of both Cersei and the Boltons. But, ultimately like where is that going to get him uh you know closer to that throne yeah exactly it's to the point like i said it's a complete portrayal of his character it was the first sign where i really started to realize where we were in trouble because Littlefinger has always consistently been the smartest character to the point where he was even able to outwit Varys who was another character that again was brilliant when we were first introduced to him you know this character it was the thing that was always admirable about admirable about the two of them is the fact that they were both not descended from royalty they were both from you know they were both from Essos they both started off with nothing and kind of scratched and clawed their way up to the positions where they were it's kind of what made them admirable is the fact that they weren't high lords and they they got where they were through sheer work and very fierce intelligence and an understanding of the game and now you have these two characters literally just kind of playing roughshod and making decisions that make no sense simply in order to gear the plot in order to make the plot go where it needs to and so it's just it, it sucks because i'm not gonna say little finger i mean well no i will say little finger was one of my favorite characters and to just see this it's just a complete an utter betrayal of his character seeing what was once such a brilliant character just completely brought down um well just completely brought down to this basic writing stupidity you know like i said it's there are many often whites are able to get away with it with a decent amount of the other characters because for the most part again with the main characters they're still able to you know for the most part stick true to their arcs and what those characters were at their core but it's with the ancillary characters like Littlefinger and varus where the cracks really start to shine through the armor even in seasons like this one that do it slightly better than some of the weaker ones so you know i I just i just don't know where his character is really going like obviously he helps sansa the North is happy. Like, was he thinking that he was going to uh, eventually marry her? But like, that doesn't make any sense because, know. you know, when he suggests that she go to the Boltons and marry him, uh, she got traumatized. And so, you know, he is the reason why Ramsey at- assaulted her. And therefore, she's never really going to support him. You know, deep down, there's going to be a hatred. You did this to me. And I just don't know what he's thinking. Um, You know, and that's the whole thing of like also pitting, you know, obviously this is going down into future episodes, but trying to pit Sansa and Arya against each other. Like they're sisters, like their bond is, is going to be, you know, pretty thick. And so it's one of those things where, um, Littlefinger from this point on definitely is treading water and it's, it's hard to say like 
what was he thinking? Like, you know, yeah. why'd he go from such a master masterful character to someone that makes some really big mistakes and uh, didn't seem to anticipate that he was doing so. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so oh, begrudgingly, even though I, I begrudgingly we have to stop in Mirene, even though it's <laughs> uh, uh, like I said, it, it's the reason it's, why I think actually that Mirene this season trumps Dorne last season because the very least we weren't in Dorne every single episode. We didn't even really get Dorne until what the second episode of last season, but then we had to spend a couple episodes traveling there. We had to build it up, and then when we got to it, it was like over with within a couple of episodes, and then they just kind of spent the rest of the time with Marine. It's like we have to spend at least some bit of it every yeah. single well, this episode. Ep- there, this episode, we get a good scene. It's basically Tyrion decides, "Hey, we're going to do things my way. We're going to invite the uh, masters of the other cities around. We're basically going to say, like, listen." You know, with Daenerys in the area, you know, the world is going to change. Slavery is going to disappear, whether you like it or not. The question is, you know, you basically you were rich because of slaves, but why don't we give you seven years to implement a new system in which allows you to be rich, but slavery is abolished? So basically... You know, instead of owning other people, you're creating a sort of, you know, economic system where you're going to have winners and losers. And obviously, the masters are the ones who have fixed the system in this case. And they're going to still be the winners. They're just not going to have slaves or, you know, they're going to have to get rid of some of the more brutal practices associated with that. So Tyrion's being pragmatic at this point and saying, like, Listen, you don't have to give up your wealth. You just got to give up your slaves. And that's what he's hoping that the masters will sort of be like, ha, this guy is right. You know, we can still maintain our position without supporting this institution of slavery. Um, And, you know, to basically uh, dot the I's and cross the T's on this deal, uh, he brings some Marine women in and says, hey, you know, this is my gift to you. And hopefully you consider my proposal. And <clears throat> he leaves and Grey Worm and Masande really think he's lost his mind. Um, that the masters, all they do is use people. And they think the latest person that they're using is Tyrion. Right. And Tyrion thinks he's actually has this, you know, knack of negotiation. But the masters have always been that way. And Grey Worm, you know points this out to him that you know this is something they've been for generations uh they just look for a way to use everybody it's, and so once again, they're to looking me, to use you in some way right and, and that to me is like the, the is kind of the the, the chink and where where you know the unra- the loose thread that unravels this entire plot line because you're right well all of those things kind of stand there in theory as far as what the scene is trying to accomplish it's weighed down by a lot of different things number one the fact that gray worm and miss sandy are 100 percent right about the fact that Tyrion thinks that he's got one up on the masters when really it's the masters are once again just running roughshod on him completely manipulating him because Tyrion again has no understanding of just really how they operate you know again he attempts to be a negotiator when again like gray worm says violence is the only thing that they understand number two he's creating more of a rift between gray worm and daenerys who again are really his only two other supporters in this situation besides varus like i said the people in marine do not know Tyrion. they don't you know they they barely know him. They have very little reason to trust him. Again, he's another rich, and from their perspective, he's another rich guy 
from across the narrow sea who has absolutely no understanding. He's just another foreign invader to them. And what's worse is Tyrion is that Grey Worm is forced to side with Tyrion in order to maintain the peace, which is a complete betrayal of his character and kind of is really diminishing to the fact that it's like, wow, you're almost spitting in their face as far as them being former slaves and now kind of being forced to accept this system, you know, that this new system that you're in place, which doesn't even end up working because the first minute that they get the masters just turn around and immediately attack them. So, like, I, I, like, it would be one thing if this, uh, if if this worked for a little bit. You know, and then obviously, you know, and before well, it works for a couple episodes, for a couple episodes. <laughs> but again, yeah. it's like over the course of time, it's like at the end of the day, like wh what did this really accomplish in hindsight? It's just another thing of where it's like, I just I don't they're once again, they're spinning their wheels in order to try and in order to try. Well, they're, this they're, they're clearly waiting for Daenerys to right. come back with the Dothraki army and re reunite with her dragons and all that stuff. So that she can be the one that is the decisive. But, but I guess defeat, my problem is not uh, you know, necessarily with what they're building the to. It's just how much of a complete betrayal of Tyrion's arc this is. Because again, this is this is not some other like schmuck. This is Tyrion Lannister. This is the smartest character, or one of the smartest characters in the entire show. There is a reason why he was able to run circles around everybody that gave Ned Stark such a headache within the first two, in season two of Game of Thrones. Like he even said, it's like, because he understands the game. And sure, I guess you could make the argument that he's in an area where he doesn't know, but it's just the fact that it's like, Tyrion should know better than this. He should be able to navigate his way around this, you know? And the fact that he is just so clearly out of his depth and then once again gets rewarded for it. Like I said, I I'm going to sound like a broken record because I'm going to talk about it every single time we hit this plot line. But, like, it's true because it's we, we see what the results are. You know, he literally screws up to the point where the Masters end up attacking them, has to rely on Daenerys and the dragons and the Dothraki coming in to save the day, and then is rewarded his hand at the king for what? For getting the people of Meereen back on Daenerys' side, whom she then immediately abandons in the aftermath to go to to, to go sail the <laughs> Westeros. Like, it, 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 I don't know, it, it's a Russian nesting doll of stupidity, you know, and, and it consistently is to me like one of the weakest storylines of the entire show, let alone this season. So, yeah, I, I think in terms of watching it week to week and, you know, not really knowing what's coming, it essentially is just laying the groundwork, uh, you know, and like you said, spinning the plate until we get to the sequence where Daenerys defeats the Masters. And so I guess I'm not really too bothered by it. You know, when I'm watching it for like the first time, I'm sort of like, okay, Tyrion is trying his best. Didn't quite work out. Um, but yeah, in retrospect, after watching it two, three times, you know, it, it becomes very apparent that they don't really have this in-depth storyline for Marine. Uh, they're just kind of right. like waiting uh, to the major plot point. Which again, I mean, this goes happens. in depth of the thing that we always say, which is, again, if the, if the people who are making the show don't care about these storylines and these characters, then why do we care? It's, I, I think this is the point where this is, I think that's why this is the point where people really started to say, yeah, it's beyond clear that of all these storylines, Betty Oppenweiss cared, the, they cared the least about Dorne last season, which is why everybody complained about it, and they cared the least about Meereen this season, which is why, again, it's just like a sore thumb in every single episode. And yeah, I think it's but the I, I think they pick and choose each season kind of what they want to focus on because, you know, uh, and we can quickly talk about this, like the iron islands, uh, Theon finally escapes. He finally yeah. gets there and he's talking to Yora and Yora's like, you know, tell me what you want. And it's like, I want you to be the, you know, ruler of the iron islands. Right. And, it's like, you know, what? so he finally gives up his birthright 
And, you know, it's like the two of them have, like, a lot to say to each other. Yeah. But basically, uh, she she cuts through the red tape. She's just basically uh, saying, you know, spit it out. Tell me exactly yeah. what you want, you know, so I can deal with this before I got to deal with our uncle. And he finally just says, like, I support you. And this is a, a great moment for Theon. Like, it finally gives him cause. Someone finally accepts him. You know, after he says what he wants as clearly as he has ever done in this show. Um, and, you know, I got this sense watching this scene again. I'm just like, hell yeah, the Greyjoys are back. And then I know yeah. what happens the rest of the scene. And then you know what happens. The rest of the- yeah, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's like, one of those things oh. where of all the storylines, like, I think there are two storylines this season, like I said, that are just complete wastes of time build up and hides that. It's Meereen and the Iron Islands, which again, like yeah, I said, but the, the, the-, the Iron Islands, they just do so well this season to bring it back hype it up and then it just they drop the ball like theon just literally becomes a bodyguard for bran in the garden and that's about it (laughs) and it's it's i mean i'll say this the acting for me saves this scene because i don't know what it is but it's like i I, like i said with different storylines having a different effect on me for me it's like the iron island just because of where they wrap up and kind of what they do with it because again they seem to be building this really really big triumphant moment where the iron islanders can finally kind of reclaim their glory after kind of being looked down upon by at by the west of westeros by the rest of westeros try saying that 10 times fast um you know for the entire show and they finally have seemed to gain this position of respect only to then immediately just be relegated to the background while Theon goes and acts like a glorified bodyguard. So, like I said, for me, like the Iron Islands could, could literally just go away as far as I'm concerned. So the only thing <laughs> yeah, that saves it's the still, season it's is still Gemma good Whalen this season. I'm, I'm gonna enjoy. Acting, so. I'm, I'm gonna enjoy. Uh, I think every scene this season with the Iron Islands. Uh, you know, hey, you know, yeah. put that prediction down. I don't know. I don't know. I'll, um, I'll, 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 I'll put that in like my little ticker box of like ironically laughing at a sequence because I know how bad it's going to get, even though it is good in the moment. Listen, I, will listen, say that. I, I think, you know, season seven, season eight. Yeah. Uh, Theon and, and uh, Yora are. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. We'll, we'll really... get to that. I'm, I'm going to have some interesting, Whatever. very, very controversial hot takes when we get to season seven. Like I'm, I, I think of all, the, I think of the, the of the last two seasons. Obviously, naturally, I'm looking forward to that one more because I just enjoy that one more. But I don't know. I'm gonna have some interesting takes there. So let's get to the last two big ones before the end. Uh, you know, let's hit King's Landing. So big stuff here. Big big setup here, which is where. Um, what's it called? Again, it, it's another one of those storylines where it doesn't seem like that much is happening, but it actually is tremendous because it's we, we only get like what two or three scenes here, and while again they don't seem like it seems like they're building up to one thing. Obviously, it's one of those things where kind of rewatching it again, it's one of those sequences that is almost made better because you know what the twist is going to be, and so you know how things are building up. So it obviously starts off with the High Sparrow visiting with Marjorie. You know, the High Sparrow as you know, we've come to learn from last episode has already gotten in Tom and Deer and Loris is here. So now he's getting and trying to get to Marjorie as well. But Marjorie, the one thing I will give her credit for is Marjorie seems to be the only character, at least within the High Sparrow's grass, that is not just completely falling for his BS. And so was able to, and this is the episode where, if anything, it's a, it's a reading situation where he's trying to read her so much. And he's trying to inform her of all of this different stuff that happened in his past. He tells her of this, you know, of his origin, about how he was a shoemaker and how he eventually got to where he was because he tried to <laughs> act like a wealthy person. And all, the, all this, yeah, all this it, bullshit. That, that was a great story. So basically, you know, he, he's shoemaker. He was doing well. He, he invested all his time. And that's really what people paid for. You know, all the time you did to put the bells and whistles on the shoes. And he crafts this really good story about how his wealth 
outpaced his father's and uh, essentially, you know, one night he was having this feast and it was an orgy and uh, he woke up and then that's when he realized he had to walk away from it because of how gross he had become. Yeah, it, it's a good story, like I said, and and once again, Jonathan Price is fantastic because I don't I don't think Jonathan Price is bad a single minute on this entire show. He's so good again. Jonathan Price, one of the few no, actors who turned down Game of Thrones early on and then was able to come back to it. Thank God. You know, there's been a couple actors that famously turned down. Brian Cox, you know, obviously Logan Roy from Succession, very famously has been vocal about the fact that he turned down Game of Thrones because he didn't think that it was going to be anything good or big, and then obviously famously regretted it after the fact. But what's so fascinating about this scene is that. This is the beginning of Marjorie starting to make a little bit of a comeback. And I will say that even though it is on the back burner, it obviously gets undercut by Cersei literally blowing everything up in the finale. That is kind of one of the few moments of victory where you think that the High Sparrow was won and gained his victory, but you could slowly start to see the wheels turning in Marjorie's head as far as how she's going to be able to manipulate this situation to her control. And this is the beginning oh, yeah. of that, obviously, when she's able to point out what specific passage the High Sparrow was quoting when they first meet up with, you know, from the Book of the Stranger, where she's like, yeah, you may be able to think you're running roughshod on me, but I know this game that's being played here. I rec I'm, I, It's the thing that I think made her character so endearing all the way back in Season 2, which is when Littlefinger was trying to whisper in her ear about being the queen, and she's able to turn it right back around and be like, I'm loyal to my husband, you know? Like, Marjorie is a, is a key player in this game, and she has not lost her, her stuff, even after having been in prison for that long. No, I agree. I, I think Marjorie starts to realize how she's going to play the game with the Sparrow. Um, and, you know, obviously that's over uh, keeping Tomlin in line and keeping the Sparrow, you know, in power. And so it's going to be an alliance between um, Marjorie and the High Sparrow to basically... Uh, control King's Landing and, and, and she gets wrestle it and she power proves it. from well, Cersei. Well, she proves it too because she's able to, even though she is not able to be freed, she's able to convince the High Sparrow to let her see Loras, which is obviously something that not even a couple episodes ago, episodes ago she never would have been able to get, you know? And even though she sees that the High Sparrow has completely gotten to Loras and completely broken him, like you said, he's like, look, let them win, you know? I don't even care anymore about any of this stuff. Just let them win just so that I can make the torture stop. You know, Loras has been completely broken by this point, but Marjorie, it, again, like... The, just that little moment right there is able to clue us into the fact that no, Marjorie's not done yet. Unfortunately, though, what does happen after the fact is a little bit of manipulation on Tommen's part. It's actually kind of crazy in hindsight to see the fact that in hindsight, Tommen fooled his mother. Fooled his mother and completely got to her where Cersei visits with Tommen. And Tommen is like, oh, I have to tell you something. And it's super, super secret, which is where he tells her that, you know, supposedly that the High Sparrow is planning on making Marjorie do a walk of penance as well. And so Cersei's able to, Cersei and Jamie are able to use that information to their advantage and bring that to Olena and Kevin. And they're finally able to like, look, let's put this petty bullshit anger and rivalry aside, you know, they're, you know, you don't want Marjorie to do that walk of penance, you know, and, and then to Kevin, they're like, and we know you hate these fanatics just as much as we do. We know you're only mad at us because we're the ones that allowed them to take control. We know that you want your son back. And they're finally able to reach an accord of some kind, which is where bring the the goddamn Tyrell army and something that should have happened the minute that Marjorie was taken from them. You know, again, I'm still baffled as to how Olena was able to let that just kind of happen last season. I'm attributing that entirely to budgetary constraints as far as how there wasn't a freaking war in the streets the minute that both of her grandchildren were, were you know, were arrested right in front of her. And what's it called? And so, but we're finally getting to it. They're like, bring the goddamn Tyrell army here. The King's Guard will stand aside and you guys go. We're going to kill as many of these freaking sparrows as we can. We're all the way up to that high sparrow. Get Marjorie, Loras, and Tom and Ben. 
get Marjorie and Loris back and get back control of the city, you know? But unfortunately, as we know, this is, unfortunately, this has all been mechanized by the High Sparrow. This has all been a plan of Hayes that he has been working. And unfortunately, as of right now, they've fallen for it, hook, line, and sinker. So, yeah, I don't know, we'll what, see what, how what, it pays off in the next couple episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting. It's this, this storyline, just how it develops in season six, I think it, it is really good. It, it goes in the right direction, it ends with a bang, literally. Um, so uh, I, I think the main thing is uh, I've always been kind of, uh, really down on the, uh, Sparrow storyline. I, I think it's a little far fetched, like how it kind of came about and how easy Cersei, uh, sort of just let it into King's Landing. And, uh, I've always kind of argued that you needed something happening in King's Landing for two seasons because, you know, everything's going on at the wall, everything else is going on. Uh, in Marine and Essos, and you have to kind of wait till these storylines have enough time uh, to develop to be able to get characters to start coming back for the end game. And you know, this High Sparrow is just this storyline that just kind of goes on and on and on. Um, you get the Walk of Penance with Cersei, which is a great sequence, and now in this season, season six, uh, you're getting a build up to uh, what ultimately takes place. Uh, with the the you know use of the uh, the green goblins liquid or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> green goblins liquid, you yeah, mean the wildfire. Back. Yeah, the wildfire. But uh, yeah, well, come on, it, it, it's pretty much the green goblins oh, like I'm sorry, green no, no, pumpkins. You're, you're, you're good. I just think that of all of all the external but, pop culture references that we've brought into this show, I think that that might be the funniest one yet the for some reason it just reminds me of the spider-man like because it's explosive and it just blows of, of up the, and... of the pumpkin bombs yeah exactly i know that's hobgoblin but uh no that's right? green goblin too oh it is green Goblin. that is okay. green goblin green goblin originated um, those yeah the hobgoblin is literally the hobgoblin it literally rips everything from the green goblin with the exception of the costume gotcha 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 yeah. so uh the main thing is you know it just reminds me of that and we're about to we're about to get it and we're about to get it in a big way and it's it's an amazing uh, opening sequence to uh, that final episode of the season. Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, it's it's good to see that even with the writing becoming significantly weaker and weaker for the middle stretch of episodes, it's good to see that at the very least for the first stretch of the season and for the last stretch of the season, Betty Off and Weiss were still putting their all into these episodes. So let's get to this final sequence. Speaking of ending with a bang, you know, like, man, oh, Betty Off and Weiss really have it in them for explosive finales, you know? I, I don't know about this, Dom, but I, I don't have much to say about this sequence. It's pretty... Uh, it's pretty cut and dry. It's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, it's kind of I mean, run in the mill. You yeah. know, like like Jorah and Dario kind of come in like swords ablazing, so to speak. So they're to gonna say they're gonna save Daenerys. A lot, a lot of bad comedy, I will say here too. With oh, yeah, Dario yeah, yeah. with the, the dagger, <laughs> Jorah with the try to fight with the guy and losing bad luck. I, I don't know what they were doing this season with trying to make it out like, oh, Jorah's not really that capable of fighting. It's like what the, what the fuck? Literally last season he was winning in the in the fight in in the Marine fighting piece. I was like, I, I don't know what they were trying oh, to do. That what, what's the comedy? Was it this episode where Dario's like, I could kill you, but then I would no, be the it's, guy. It's like, no worry. It's like, I don't want to fight. If I win, I'm the shit who killed an old man. If I lose, I'm the shit who lost to an old man. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's There's some good, you know, back and forth kind of like uh, buddy cop. You know, I, I, you know, I kind of hate you, but we'll learn to love each other by the end of the storyline. Um, you know, it, it, that type of, uh, you know, action movie is playing out here. Uh, but they kind of sneak into camp. 
Uh, again, like they stab him, the one guy with a sword, and it's like, well, they're just gonna raise the alarm if we leave him like that. And then Dario just smashes him Bashed with a rock. Smashed with a rock. Um, it's like, okay, but that doesn't cover the knife wound. Like, well, apparently it did, and because later wow, on, hey, later on, like the guy's like, yeah, my member got his, uh, you know, head smashed in with a skull or with a rock. Dumber than I thought they were. I mean, they, I'm not yeah. gonna say they've ever been the brightest, but like, come on. Yeah, but it, it was more like he assumed that it was some uh, drunken spat, you know, over uh, potentially like a, a another Dothraki woman, and you know, he got himself killed. But you know, so the, the the fact is that he bashed him with the rock. You know, led to this like weird like dismissal of, of that character's death. Um, you know, for the most part, it's. Dario and and uh, what's his face Jora are going in to save her. It's kind of like the damsel in distress moment, right. and then they and finally of course they have to put a flip on it because yeah they they they, they, they yeah they meet up with her and then it turns out like she's like no like you're never gonna save me that way like heroics are are kind of BS and but I got a plan you got to help me out and. Uh, this is where um, Daenerys's cunning comes forth, and we can see that she's actually, uh, you know, a pretty good uh, leader. Is she decides to recreate, you know, what got the Dothraki to believe in her in the first place, and that's, you know, basically going into the fire. So she locks herself with all the coals in the big house. Um, you know, help from a, a random cameo from Hannah John Kamen. Dude, this is still the point where Hannah John Kamen wasn't like super big yet. Like, I think she had like was one year out from being cast in the sequel to Ant Man. But I don't know. That's just one of those things where it's like in the moment it was like, oh, that that person looks semi sort of famous. But in hindsight, it like it, it just kind of resembles stunt casting. But especially because they, it, it's a nothing part that they literally just gave to that actress. So yeah. So it, the the main thing is there's uh some choice words back and forth and. Uh, you know, the the calls just want to abuse uh, Daenerys and then, you know, give them to the uh, blood raiders. And then if there's anything left, give them to the horse or give her to the horses. Well, if I can um, say one and, thing about the scene, though, the, the one thing that I will say is that I think that and this is kind of leading into my credence of where they were always planning on building to the Mad Queen. They just obviously stumbled and fell a lot in the last couple episodes. But the one thing I will say is that I do think that there's some credence there where she kind of starts off the speech by talking about that, that that's, you know, the hut where she originally had her pregnancy ritual where she had to eat the horse's heart way back into season one. And then how when she's talking about how the cows are all talking about, you know, splitting up going to raid these different villages and basically how small the thought process is. And what she's basically trying to get at is that if they kind of all pooled their efforts, just kind of how unstoppable she could be and kind of because they're not capable of really pulling their efforts together, that she is kind of the natural inheritor of all of that power. And that, I will say, is some very Mad Queens, some very imperialist thinking right there. So that's why I don't completely disregard this sequence, you know, and why it kind of still holds up. No, to me. I, I, I think her thought process makes a lot of sense, you know, and their reaction, like I said, is that, uh, you know, they she's a woman and she, right. to them, she's just, uh, you know, a piece of meat, so to speak. And, you know, she should, you know, learn her place. And, you know, that's really what sets the situation on fire. Literally. Uh, because I don't, know, I don't know how many, how much more obvious we could be about it. 
Yeah, she's tired. She's tired of listening to this crap, and you know she pushes the, uh, you know the coals onto the ground. Uh, you know multiple pedestals of these. Uh, you know, uh, basically, um, you know I, I imagine it's just wood. You know, set up in a pyre type situation. So she pushes them over. It starts burning up the house from the inside. They all rush to the door and. We realize Jorah and Dario have locked the door from the outside, right. killed all the other people that are guarding this hut. And essentially what happens is she keeps pushing the pedestals over, uh, causing more and more damage. And uh, at the very last moment, she uh, corners the head, the one that was really um, saying that she she was no longer going to survive, that they were going to kill her. Uh, and she actually does the deed and, and pushes one last uh, pyre of fire onto him and kills him. Uh, and then she emerges, right? You know, yep. as we saw, very, very reminiscent. Of, yeah, very reminiscent of the of, you know little little callback to the finale of season one when she first walked exactly. into the funeral pyre. And, got, and then again. everybody kneels down and uh, credits. You know, yep. every, everybody is is yep. on board. It's the new Dothraki army following Daenerys. Uh, and that's really what's going to help yeah. when they return to Marine. So let me ask you this last thing before we get out of here. Is this simply a repeat and a retread of previous territory? Or is this like kind of like uh, a, an interesting and kind of good conclusion to kind of where she started versus where she is at now? Because, I, because if, if anything, I will say that like these first couple episodes as far as her being back with the Dothraki, I think are an interesting kind of callback to where she originally started and kind of this idea of coming full circle. You know, it was always something that I was really going to be interested to see how they were going to break that down in the books as well i i would say that it's you know i think it's good i i enjoyed it this go around like you know her uh going to this place and you know trying to uh be the fish out of water and figure out how she's going to you know get to the top or get on top of the situation and come out um you know basically uh with an army um but i i think it's it's almost like they don't spend enough time on this. Like, you know, she should be struggling a little bit uh, for a couple more episodes. And uh, at the end of the day, she kind of, you know, uh, gets the upper hand and gets this army. Like, I feel like she should have earned it right. or, you know, had to work for it a little more. Feels like it fell um, into her hands a little bit too quickly. Exactly. Like it was, the, it was almost one like conversation with the other former Cal and that was it. Yeah. The end of last season is like, let's, Let's fly her right where she can get kidnapped. And then at the beginning of this season, we're just going to literally have her get the Dothraki army and then she's good to go. She can go back to Marine and figure that situation out. Um, you know, it's it's could be a little too much too quick uh, in, in terms of the way I'm thinking. Uh, it would it would have been nice to drag it out a little bit and make the reward of her sort of getting one up on all the calls. Um, you know, um, basically a little more rewarding. Uh, there's not enough buildup to the storyline to be like, oh, she she burned them alive and she took the their armies. Um, that's an awesome thing to happen. And I kind of got a little sense of like, yeah, let's go Daenerys at the end of this episode. But I think with a little more buildup, uh, this could have been a perfect moment for this uh, series. 
So I think that the kind of the summation of this episode is while it's got some great moments, they are not all necessarily earned because of the fast pace of the season, because of the fast tracking. Because like I said, this season is still continuing in a little bit of the trajectory of season five where they're surpassing those rich, juicy character moments in order to continuously get to and build to the actual. Because like I said, there is so much that happens in this episode that we yeah. almost forget that there's still so much more to happen in the next couple episodes before we even get to battle the bastards. I feel like we're moving more into the streaming world. You know, it's like um, I want to get through season six as fast as possible. So it, it's like I want to watch the next episode. You know, so th this happens, right? She gets the Dothraki army and I want to see what she does with it. And I think the pacing of the show changes to be like, all right, that happened. Let's go. Right. Um, you know, the next episode is called The Door. So it's like, you know, uh, as soon as we understand what that is, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like you're like, let's go, episode six. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of like big moments happening in this um, that really push you to watch it uh, a little bit faster. So, you know, if you're back when it was first airing and doing week to week, you're like, oh, my God, I can't wait for next week. But in the world of binging, you you could be like, oh, man, let's go put on the next episode. I'm ready to watch. Absolutely. Um, so I, I feel like they're starting to hit that stride. Um, and, you know earlier in the season where we saw things develop over time and uh, a lot of the setups, you know, be paid off in time. I, I think here we're getting uh, shorter sort of story arcs that basically pay off a lot quicker. Um, and that's really for, in my mind, um, to get you to want to really binge watch the rest of the show. Um, you know, I think season seven and eight are okay in terms of like, if you sit down and watch them back to back to back um, and get through it, 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 the pacing is pretty uh, intense and, and moves forward. Uh, if you stop and think about things, you know, I that's, think that's when where the, the I think that's where the problems arise. Uh, yeah. Come. Yeah, I, I could think of a better place to to leave off with. Yeah, 100%. We'll continue to cover this in the next couple of weeks as we get closer and closer and closer to the finale, the Iron Throne. Again, I'm going to keep hyping it up. Next week, we got another big one, like you said, the door, obviously, which is where we get the infamous hold the door moment. Obviously, that, that very heartbreaking moment that we get at the end. Hold, hold of the, the pickles. Episode. Hold the pickles, indeed. Pat. Where His name could have been totally different if that was <laughs> Totally different context if that had been Was it Hopal? Who knows? Hopi? I don't know. I, it's hard. Who knows? Let us we're, know, we're, I guess. You're, you're already brainstorming the jokes for now. You're already spoiling next week's episode as it is. Pat, where can the people follow you? All right, man. I, I'm just at Patrick W. Huber on Instagram right now. So uh, sharing things every once in a while. So, you know, check it out. Uh, that's where you can find what I'm uh, interested in course you can follow me at movie nerd reviews across all platforms be sure to follow the official talking tv podcast on instagram facebook and twitter be sure to also subscribe to us on youtube and twitch if you aren't already like i said new episodes of the talking thrones podcast are uploaded every single friday on spotify apple Podcasts, and any other place where you can listen to podcasts and as always people the battle for the throne continues 12 seasons in a short film watch more fucking movies and stay frosty we'll see you guys next time